We need to discuss okay. from the previous episode when I jokingly said I didn't know 16 tons. Right, okay. And I said, I don't know music. I have been doing this for like four years. Yeah. With quite mainstream things. And I thought this was this adorable bit that you and I were in on together. And then you sent me an email going, I can't believe you've never heard of this. Like you referenced the Beatles the other day and I was like, what's that? Or something along those lines, one of their songs. Have, for the last four or five years, do you think that, like, if you shake me hard enough, you'll just hear loose pennies rattling around in my skull, or...? Maybe the music bit of the brain, yeah. I was just really upset by that. I thought that was a joke that we were all in on together, but it was just me. Yeah, <laughs> the best kind of joke, in my experience. Well, it's all part of our Sam and Diane vibe. It's yep. fine. But do I commit now? I do I double tr- down? Trust, trust your heart. <laughs> Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Bob's your uncle over here is Daniel. Um, what do Americans say when something... Some, a positive result is affected from a series of clear but seemingly serendipitous processes. That's what Bob's your uncle means, isn't it? Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. Daniel came up with a American cognate. Look at his split. It's Abby. <laughs> so Daniel, we're still working through our backlog of letters that people have written in. Would you like to read some of them, please, and thank you? Yes, I would. Please and thank you. I'm glad that's finally taking off a bit of politesse this is from molly i graduated with an undergrad in english lit i'm sorry to hear that and i'm absolutely in love with your podcast i especially love when you have episodes over victorian literature that was my focus in college Ooh, come study with us molly come do a phd with me molly in particular your episode on silas marner killed me brackets George Eliot and her pastoral pick-me-girl energy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that tickled me. I just wanted to offer a friendly hello and encouragement to keep doing what y'all do best. I think a fun one-off episode idea would be y'all covering some canonical folklore. I like the sound of that. I guess that means Grimm's fairy tales sort of shrug emoji. But also, maybe y'all could cover The Hobbit, because it's a warm, fuzzy classic for the holiday. Which holiday was that? This was in Christ- uh, Christmas time. Okay, cool. Regardless, big fan, big love, happy holidays. Well, I love the idea of the folklore. Yeah, I like folklore. I, th- I think it'd be a really fun episode to do at some point. Maybe- Vladimir Prop. Let's cut out the middle man and just do Vladimir Prop. <laughs> <laughs> we could, I mean, we could even mix in some Angela Carter or something Ooh. with it. And then what was the other one? The Hobbit? Yes, The Hobbit, yeah. What do you think about that, J.R.R. Jokin? <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, I, I, I can't I like imagine. Really? But you and I had discussed before doing Lord of the Rings, and you put your foot down well, very do firmly. Because like, that's shit, isn't it? Disagree. But yeah, The Hobbit, Wait, maybe. You like, that... you like Lord of the Rings, do you? Do you know how many times I've read Lord of the Rings, at least in high school? Once. We'll go with that, because any more than that would make me sound like a nerd. Yeah. We've got another letter. This one is from 
a mostly queer listener. Hello! I'm a queer woman and I want to let Abby know that I consider her a solid queer icon for her many queer readings throughout the podcast. So you may remember that that was Abby's aspiration. That was my New Year's resolution was to become a queer icon. Yeah. It's like the Wizard of Oz though, you were all along. (laughs) Um, And speaking of which, uh, she truly is the Judy, the Liza and the Dolly of her generation. I'm not going to lie, I got little thrills up and down my spine when I read that. Yeah. But, listener, you got to put your money where your mouth is. you got to dress up as me for Halloween. Because otherwise, it, these are just hollow words. I really, if this is what you believe in your heart of hearts, I need to see evidence of it. However, I should probably caveat this with a note about my credibility, given that I question my sexuality every time <laughs> Daniel sternly commands us to rate and review an episode. Yes, Daddy. But, mostly queer listener, did you rate, review, and subscribe? Um, Is that you trying to be sexy? Yeah. Because <laughs> if you didn't do it, it didn't work, did it? Yeah. Yeah, what are all these thrills worth to you? And also, frankly, if you're getting little thrills, I think you need to start paying us like $6 a go because this is turning into sex work. Ooh, yeah. I just like that saving from myself is turning into a sort of gay conversion course. We do so many queer readings as to render it meaningless, and then I'm the kicker. I come in at the end, assert the heteronormativity. Okay. And then we have one final message, and I never do this. I, I only ever respond to messages that we receive through the form on our website or directly to email. But we got one on Instagram. I want to be the meat in an Abby and Daniel sandwich. I, I hate to disappoint you, but Daniel's a vegetarian. Yeah. And thanks for giving me something to talk to my therapist about this week. Also, just so you guys know, here at Aston University, we have an undergrad English Lit program, and we've just opened up a master's program in English. So please do consider studying with us if you would like Daniel and I to teach you. I also take PhD students in Victorian literature or genre fiction, so that is also an option. Please write in if you are interested in any of that. So, Daniel, what is our text today? It's the 1890s. You know the drill. Steamboats, threshing machines, telegraphy, pneumatic drills. It was a period of drills, wasn't it? Technology is progressing like never before. But is civilization itself therefore progressing as well? Is what we gain in material terms matched by a corresponding decline in our moral, our spiritual character? Look around you. What do you see? Drugs. Sexual excess cynicism, effeminacy, and democracy. They're all rife. In a word, we're veering into decadence. This is the context of today's episode. Not only the book itself, but also the fact that the great unwashed were the ones who voted for it. Because we're doing Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray, 1891. Yeah, this was our audience pick from last season. And, you know, if we do a season five, we'll probably put up another set of polls on Twitter so you guys can decide which text you would like us to feature in an episode. So it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. The content, in terms of what we're going to be talking about today, we got a lot of murder by stabbing. There's some suicide by stabbing. There's suicide by poison. There's a lot of misogyny and there's some anti-Semitism. You forgot one. Did I? Somebody gets shot. Oh, and somebody gets shot. General kind of uh, immiseration. And drug use. Let's not forget drug use. Blackmail. 
sex work that doesn't seem hugely well, happy and willing. That out well, yeah. Degeneracy. Yeah. Moral laxity, but make it fashion. Uh, some pretty annoying people as well. Would you like to do some background, please, friend? Of course. What was that? I don't know what I Sorry, I guess I'm ready for my exorcism now. <laughs> Oscar Wilde. He was a, an Anglo-Irish poet, playwright, critic, and short story writer. Dorian Gray was his only novel. Yeah, he was born in Dublin in 1854 to an upper-middle-class family of intellectuals and Irish nationalists. He studied classics, or greats, as they like to call it, at Trinity College Dublin and then at Oxford. At Oxford, he attained notoriety as this kind of dandified bohemian. In the 1880s, Wilde moved to London. He got married. Uh, people might not know that. To um, a lady. To a lady, yeah. And he made a living writing and editing newspapers um, by giving public lectures. More importantly, I think maybe he was this kind of all-around society type, so he just kind of milled around with the big names of the period. You know, all those household names that we all talk about today. Walter Pater, John Ruskin, <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan, Lily Langtry. Imagine that, Lily Langtry and Oscar Wilde. I would love to be a fly on the wall there. Can I tell you my Lily Langtry story? Yes, please. Um, she was the mistress to Edward the oh, Seventh. yeah, this is a good story. Yeah. And it's disgusting, so, you know, oh. brace yourselves for some sexual content here, but um, it, one day her, Edward the Seventh was lamenting how much money he had spent on her over the years and he said madam i've spent enough on you to build a battleship and she said sir you've spent enough in me to float one yeah that revolting. is that is disgusting yeah. and but her timing man can't beat that timing yeah but anyway okay wild uh bell of the ball who else was he kicking it with daniel james mcneil whistler george bernard shaw can't think of any funny anecdotes about him being witty. Bram Stoker, tons of aristocrats, and Wilde cemented his reputation as an aesthete and wit. Same. Yeah. So he published collections of short stories in the 1880s, you know, The Happy Prince, Lord Arthur Savile's Crime. They're kind of like sort of fairy tale type things, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Dorian Gray wrote in 1891, and then after that he's shifted to writing drama, so... We've got the kind of erotic thriller Salome. Which I love. I've read that. That's a cool read. En Francais? No, because when I read it, I couldn't read French yet. Okay. And the comedies, uh, Lady Windermere's Fan and The Importance of Being Earnest. I really like Salome. For those who don't know, it's obviously about the sort of biblical Salome and John the Baptist, but it is written in such a way as to mimic the sex act, so it gets more frenzied as it goes on. The climax of the play is supposed to actually mimic a climax. It's right. very, like, rhythmic. Could be a bit revealing, couldn't it? So you're like, oh, is that, is that how you think it goes, Mr. Wilde? Uh, so. Yeah, why, why is there a bit where somebody just cries for 20 minutes after? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stop him for a sandwich halfway through or something. Wilde's biography is dominated by the controversy that surrounded his homosexuality, which was very publicly outed in the 1890s. So Wilde had been having an affair with this young aristocrat called Lord Alfred Douglas, Bosey to his mates. I hate Bosey. Lord Alfred Douglas, more than I think I hate any historical person. He is such Hitler. a... Hitler? No, he's worse. Oh, really? No. You, sir, are worse than Hitler. Well, maybe if Bosey had been in power, imagine what would have happened. I just remembered that Bosey was a Nazi sympathizer. There you go. Seals there the you, deal. There Seals you have the deal. it. Carry on. He's an absolute dirtbag. He is just the er-fuck boy. He just took him for a ride. He got him to spend all of his money on him and bail him out. And he was spending it on like young, pretty fellows and things. What? So Wilde was spending his money on a young, pretty fellow who was spending his money on an even younger, pretty Yeah. He fellows. was sugar daddying and he, and Bosie was using. So Wilde was a sugar granddad. 
It's what you're saying. Oh. And Bosie was a sugar dad. <laughs> yeah, he was filtering through the money so then he could sh- get sugar babies of his own. Wow. Ugh. Kind of like a pyramid scheme or something, isn't it? Anyway, so in 1895, Bosie's father, I like this guy. As we've already discussed, I'm super heteronormative. You know, I can actually turn people just like that. Marcus of Queensbury, Bosie's dad, alluded that Wilde was a sodomite at Wilde's club. He left a little calling card for him, didn't he? And it said to Wilde the sodomite or something like that. And that was meant to completely disgrace Oscar Wilde because being gay at this period was a crime. Yeah, yeah. So Wilde sued him for libel because this accusation would, yeah, ruin his reputation. Unfortunately... It's not liable if it's true, is it, you know? So, <laughs> Wilde was gay. And how? Yeah, and that kind of came out in court. So, Wilde lost his case, and he was subsequently tried and imprisoned for gross indecency, which, yeah, means being gay. And he was sentenced to hard labour. After a two-year sentence, Wilde's reputation and health were ruined, and he moved to Paris and died in 1900. So, pretty sad ending for Oscar Wilde. I do feel like gay genius Leonardo da Vinci walked so Oscar Wilde could run. It's just a shame it was straight into a brick wall. (laughs) So yeah, Dorian Gray was first published in serial form in 1890. It was then expanded into a novel in 1891. This later version has... Is that the one that's prominently read today? Is that the one that we read? Yeah, the main one that we read. Wilde excised a lot of the kind of more overtly homosexual aspects of the narrative. That said, this is still a very like on the surface gay book. So we do a lot of queer readings on this podcast. This isn't really a reading. This is kind of just like explicitly what happens. So I think I'll put in, I'll put in a default queer reading here for you know for posterity. But we're gonna need something else, a different sort of sound effect to just emphasize on the surface gayness. Keep it gay. Keep it gay. Keep it gay. I've written a lot of jokes in this that revolve around queerness. I am living my best life. This is QueerCon 2023. If you guys are not interested in hearing that today, turn this off because I am raring to go. Okay. Yeah, the novel explores a lot of other themes associated with Wilde's life, though, as well as homosexuality. So high society and the demimonde, you know, the the kind of the world of criminals and stuff underneath the uh, underneath high society. The role of art, its relationship to life, tensions between public and private life. And also the fin de siècle artistic movements of aestheticism and decadence. And they made a lot of the idea that of like art for art's sake. So, you know, art doesn't need any kind of practical function. It doesn't have to be moral or, you know, instructive or anything. It should just be appealing in its own right, appealing to the senses. Decadence in particular is, a, is about like a kind of hedonism built on art for art's sake, isn't it? So it kind of fetishizes like artificial and eccentric ways of living and you know trying to kind of you know be out of step with normal society but with this kind of fatalism about the state of civilization you know they're kind of like it's all going to part anyway we might as well it's last might days as well of run with it yeah, yeah last days of rome exactly. you know let's all feast and f- until the world explodes yeah. sort of thing like yeah till the goths turn up so another big aspect of dorian gray is the role of wit so it's full of all these like wildisms you know you know them the kind of epigrams the one-liners that are all kind of dry and ironical and self-aggrandizing but also kind of absurd he writes characters lines as tweets yeah exactly basically. Yeah. yeah let's have a few of them from wild you know biography i can resist everything except temptation ha 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 i have the simplest taste i'm always satisfied with the best you know me both one can survive everything nowadays except death hilarious because you know you can't survive that can you the famous deathbed one this wallpaper will be the death of me one of us will have to go they're kind of annoying me a bit, don't they? I... You sound incredibly fed up with this already. Yeah, I just... 
Lord Watton, the character that's the sort of wild proxy, does these all the time. I'm going to try and elide them completely. I just want to call it Bance. This is Bance, pure and simple. This is where Bance came from. I hate Bance, all right? And this is, this is like the sort of Bance at its, at its highest and at its most, you know, er, kernel. I hate the word yeah, Bance. Yeah, I, I hate everything about Bance. You know this about me, and you've done this anyway. This is something that, if I hear somebody saying, even ironically, like, oh, it's all for the Bance, you and I are probably not going to get along, and you have done this, Daniel, just to irritate me today. I appreciate you're trying to undercut the character and his wit, but I'm angry about it. Well... This was QueerCon 2023. Two, two birds, one stone. I'm very happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. So I'm going to put a little ding in every time you say bants, so I can tally up at the end how many minutes I have to hold your head underwater. So the picture of Dorian Gray starts with an absolutely fascinating little theoretical essay by Oscar Wilde about what the purpose of art is. And it's just this series of individual statements, so there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written, that is all. And we can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. The little essay ends on, all art is quite useless. And this essay should be pretentious, but it's just funny enough to be really, really charming. I think he says some serious things in it as well, though. But it is winking and knowing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like if Friedrich Nietzsche were funny. I mean, I read this and, Intentionally. and my corset undid itself. I am aroused. Yeah, I think it's really good. That's, I think that's the. this is a philosophical novel as well as a sort of decadent ghost story, isn't yes. it? And I think the philosophical stuff is really good. And all of these themes are going to run through the novel itself. In fact, we open, first scene, on an artist studio. And inside this artist studio is one Lord Henry Wotton. Bantosaurus Rex. There he is. That's my little epithet for him. Sobriquet. <sighs> Keep going. And he's sort of lounging around. He's loosely smoking a, quote, opium-tainted cigarette. Ooh. And all of this is just incredibly sensual in sort of all the literal meanings of the word. You know, all of the senses are being savored. He's just the laughing The sense that can perceive cushions. The sense that can perceive flowers. The sense that can <laughs> look at the shadows of birds. Yeah, you're right. It very is. Yeah. He's just, he's sort of the epitome of decadence. He's a, he's a dark chocolate ganache in exquisite tailoring. And yeah, he, he sort of talks like a Twitter account. He talks like, you know, drill, if drill were fabulous. Just every sentence out of this guy's mouth, to the point that it gets to be quite irritating after mm. a while, is this sort of perfectly curated, witty, and often quite cruel little observations. So yeah, you had called him Bantosaurus Rex here. The prefab I had is, this book is an embarrassment of bitches. Yeah, very good. So this art studio is that of the painter Basil Hallwood. Who's sort of friends, kind of. Yeah. They're not good friends. They're the sort of level of friends that would, like, invite each other to play Bejeweled Blitz on Facebook. But friends nonetheless. Basil's painting what Lord Henry thinks is his best ever work. But Basil doesn't want to exhibit it. And Henry's like... Why not, dummy? And Basil's like, well, I've put too much of myself into it. Lord Henry's like, well, wait a minute. This is of some young hottie. Uh, I wrote some young thoughty. Yes, yeah. He's an Adonis, this guy is. Uh, he looks as if he was made out of ivory and rose leaves. Ooh. Yeah, to, to, you know, 
would look like. In my film version, this is where a string quartet starts playing What a Man, What a Man, What a Mighty Mighty Good Man. Yeah, very classy. Uh, very, very Classy piece? Yeah, yeah, high, high decadence there, I think, yeah. This man is Dorian Gray, a young man that Basil states he was hoping he could keep away from Lord Henry's cynical influence. So Basil says, quote, When I like people immensely, I never tell their names to anyone. It's like surrendering a part of them. And Lord Henry's like, buddy, I get it. Secrets make everything sexier. I'm married and I never even see my wife. It really keeps the spark alive. And I have to tell you, Daniel, I love a chaotic bisexual. Of all my subsets of queers, a glamorous chaotic bisexual is absolutely my top tier liquor of choice. Every time. Very Dungeons and Dragons. But yeah, what Basil means is not that he's in the painting, but rather that he's afraid that he's shown in it the secret of his own soul. He's like put too much of his own sort of emotions into the painting. So yeah, there's our first sort of coded homosexuality moment that Basil's obviously in love with this guy. Keep it mad, keep it glad, keep it gay! Dorian is so attractive and charming that he can absorb the whole soul of his painter. Mm. Yeah, exactly. What is this yeah, that's fruity what, business? That's what we all want, isn't it, to have our soul absorbed. So the long story short is that Basil spotted Dorian at a party and he just fell head over penis in love with him and he basically, like, he's really intense about Dorian very fast. <laughs> he starts singing that um, Something's Coming song from West Side Story and he's just really convinced that Dorian holds his fate in his hands. They hit it off and now Basil sketches or paints Dorian every single day and he can't seem to produce a bad piece of artwork if it's a picture of Dorian. How extraordinary. He and Dorian are best friends, but, this, this might sound familiar, Dorian doesn't always treat him very well. Mm. A little, little hint that um, Lord Alfred Douglas, Bosey, might be a stand-in for, uh, for Dorian here. Quote, Now and then, however, he, Dorian, is horribly thoughtless and seems to take a real delight in giving me pain. Then I feel, Harry, that I have given away my whole soul to someone who treats me as if it were a flower to put in his coat, a bit of decoration to charm his vanity, an ornament for a summer day. That's interesting as well, because Watton is like a wild alike, but so is Holwood. It's worth bearing in mind, I think. Henry thinks that this Dorian sounds like an interesting bloke. Basil's like, you know, too bad, I don't want you to meet him. Oh, the butler's here. Oh, Dorian Gray has arrived. Gray, you know, there goes that plan. Did someone order an ill-timed hunk, sir? That's the end of the first chapter. So Basil's like, crap, my, my new kind of boyfriend, best friend is here. Harry, you're going to ruin him. You're going to be a bad influence. I need you to promise before he comes in d not to take him away from me. He's Dorian is the one person who makes my art shine. He's all I have. But it's too late. Harry... His Grace the Archbishop of Banterbury, as Daniel wrote. Look at that shit-eating grin on your face right now. Um, Second to none. It's just, uh, it's just such a twat, and he needs to be labelled as a twat. <laughs> and I think the, the word banter does that. He's already unbuttoning his trousers and lining up some coke on a mirror. He is ready to go. Yes, what? he was certainly wonderfully handsome, with his finely curved scarlet lips. His frank blue eyes, his crisp golden hair. There was something in his face that made one trust him at once. All the candor of youth was there, as well as all youth's passionate purity. One felt that he had kept himself unspotted from the world. No wonder Basil Hallward worshipped him. There we go. Audiobook. I can do audiobooks. <laughs> 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 
feel like I need a cough mint now or something. Yeah. I was gonna say our uh, our fan who likes your. Yeah, she's she's not gonna be knowing what's going on now. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy heterosexuality. So Dorian comes in, and it becomes clear almost immediately that the real chemistry is now between Dorian and Lord Harry. And Basil starts painting Dorian like he does every day while the while Lord Harry and Dorian chat. And Basil gets pretty sulky about all of this. Basil knows that once the two of them start hanging out, it's going to be a real race to the bottom. And the prefab I have here is, Basil thinks, I wish there were a race to my bottom. <laughs> Very good. While Basil paints, Dorian and Henry talk... <laughs> what? It's a funny joke, isn't it? What? It just hit, I just got it, the, the bottom one. No, no, it is a funny joke. Yeah, I'm just laughing about it. What's happening? I just genuinely thought it was funny. So while Basil paints, Dorian and Henry talk about all different kinds of things. Bad influences, sin, morality, the soul, pleasure, regret, and how youth is the only thing worth having. How Dorian, with all of his beauty and charm, could practically own the hedonistic world they live in, if only for a season, mm. until he gets old and his beauty fades. I had this exact conversation with Mickey Rourke once. Mm-hmm. So Dorian gets really worked up by all of this and flustered, and he, he thinks that Henry, quote, had touched some secret chord in Dorian that had never been touched before, but that he felt now vibrating and throbbing to curious pulses. Yeah, wow. Keep it happy, keep it snappy, keep it gay. Yeah. Oh, hello. God. Curious pulses. <laughs> Look Lentil. at those lentils. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've never seen a lentil like that before. <laughs> Basil has in the meantime finished his painting and invites the pair to have a look at it. Dorian is shocked and moved by it. Quote, the sense of his own beauty came on him like a revelation. We've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> um, but then he starts worrying. Quote, there would be a day when his face would be wrinkled and wizen, his eyes dim and colourless, the grace of his figure broken and deformed, the scarlet would pass away from his lips, and the gold steal from his hair. Dorian starts freaking out. He says, oh, oh, I'm jealous of the painting. Why should it keep what I must lose? Every moment that passes takes something from me and gives something to it. If only it were I who was to always be young and the picture that was to grow old. For that, for that, I would give everything. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's, he's at the little fortune-telling robot, isn't he? Yeah. I... Tom Hanks. That's casting. Done. I'm really impressed with your snotty little rich boy accent. That was pretty good. That's just, that's just me. That's how you yeah, talk. That's my I've too. always said when you were a little boy with your big giant lolly and your hoop and your stick. Oh, please, please. I know there's a photograph out there of you in a little sailor hat. I know it. Yeah, well, it doesn't look very good. Let's put <laughs> yeah, it that way. Yeah, yeah it's, a lot of stuff's happened to it. So, Do you think this is a tacky moment for Wilde? Yes. Also, I suppose that's... One of the ambiguities of the text, isn't it? That it is sort of like a folk tale almost, and it yeah. needs this kind of Faustian moment. So Dorian basically bursts into tears because he's so upset that he's going to get older one day. And Basil's like, Jesus, if it's going to upset you this much, I'll just tear the painting to shreds and you won't have to be jealous of it anymore. So he approaches the painting with a knife, but Dorian stops him, saying that to cut up the painting would be murder. Whoa, yeah. Foreshadowing horror. Get that on me. What? So, <laughs> Basil infers that Dorian's new outlook on life was a gift from your friend of mine, Banter Claus. Daniel, yeah. I hate you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lord Henry 
He's corrupted Dorian already. Basil realises that Dorian is now completely under Lord Henry's wing. Motherfucker moves fast. Yeah. So Lord Henry, a.k.a. the Banta Ray, as Daniel wrote. Yeah. I'm going to put you in a sack and drown you in the river. I'm so mad at you right now. Sorry. He starts asking around high society about Dorian. Turns out Dorian's mother was a rich, beautiful noblewoman who ran off with a poor soldier causing a scandal. And they both died within a year, leaving young Dorian, quote, a son of love and death to be raised by his lordly grandfather. Lord Henry absolutely loves this dramatic backstory. And he's like, Dorian, I've decided I'm not going to be your boyfriend. I want to be your mother, your father, your everything now. I will show you how to live. I will breastfeed you. Yeah, that's a good bit. (laughs) Quote, talking to him, Dorian, was like playing upon an exquisite violin. He answered to every touch and thrill of the bow. He, Lord Henry, would seek to dominate him. Already had, indeed, half done so. He would make that wonderful spirit his own. Oh, my toxic little chili pepper. Yeah, Yeah, God. Um, Henry and Dorian start hanging out a lot, and they're the toast of society. Lord Henry's the brains, Dorian's the body. Who runs Bartertown? Master Blaster runs Bartertown. Which is a joke that Daniel will neither get nor appreciate. No. You don't get that at all. No, and I didn't really like it either. Oh, well, sorry for not being funny. I grew up beautiful and never learned how to compensate. Um, (laughs) Do you want me to not appreciate it? I thought I wanted to confirm your prediction. Only a month after they've met, Dorian is already spouting little sayings like Lord Henry. Or as Daniel calls him, the Elebant Man. Yeah, I just like to think there's this ridiculous bit, isn't there, where Lord Henry, you know, like the Elephant Man, they pull off the sheet, everybody's astounded by him because we get this absurdly silly passage describing his banter. He played with the idea and grew willful, tossed it into the air and transformed it, let it escape and recaptured it, made it iridescent with fancy and winged it with paradox, the praise of folly as he went on soared into a philosophy, and the philosophy herself became young, and catching the mad music of pleasure, wearing what might fancy her wine-stained robe and wreath of ivy, danced like a bacant over the hills of life and mocked the slow Silenus for being sober. Blah, blah, blah. It's just crazy. This is such a stupid passage. Their friendship is basically just Lord Henry hitting copy-paste. But today, you know, a month after they've met, Dorian drops a bombshell. He's in love. Lord Henry is worried until Dorian says he's fallen in love with an actress. And Henry's like, oh, we've all been there. Okay, I thought this was something serious. You had me worried. Oh, no, says Dorian. I'm very serious about it. Her name is Sybil Vane, and she's a genius. So now Lord Henry starts to get a little bit nervous, especially... Um, Emmanuel Bant. Carry on. I want to ride you out of town Wild West style. Okay, on a rail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lord Henry <laughs> starts to get nervous because he remembers that Dorian's own upper-class mother gave up all high society to run off with a penniless soldier. So he's like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this is something I need to keep an eye on. Dorian, meanwhile, is obsessed with Sybil. He goes to see her in a new Shakespeare play every single night. They're making new ones, are they? (laughs) Oh, just new productions. New productions. So now we cut to Sybil, who's in the theater, and she's telling her working-class mother that their days of struggle are over. Because, Ma, I landed myself a rich fella, and it's going to get all kinds of Real Housewives of Whitechapel. Then we find out that Sybil doesn't even know Dorian's name. 
He's proposed marriage to her after only a month of courtship, and she still only knows him as Prince Charming. So Sybil's brother James comes in, and he's a bit of a sort of rough, loudish sort. He's heading to Australia to make his fortune, and he tells their mother to watch over Sybil. You know, he's heard there's this mysterious, rich, stage door Johnny who's, <laughs> you know, coming backstage every night, and he doesn't want one thing to lead to another. James starts wishing that he wasn't going to Australia after all. Quote, there was jealousy in the lad's heart, a fierce, murderous hatred of the stranger who, as it seemed to him, had come between them, him and Sybil. Yet when her arms were flung round his neck and her fingers strayed through his hair, he softened and kissed her with real affection. There were tears in his eyes as he went downstairs. Incest reading? Hooray! The McBoyle bloodline's been pure and clean for a thousand years. Yeah, about time. About bloody time. Lord Henry comes to meet Basil to tell him that Dorian is engaged to be married. Basil's like, liar, liar, bants on fire. <laughs> it's not funny when I say it. God damn it, Daniel. Yeah, but Henry swears he's telling the truth. Basil's very upset, heartbroken. So they decide to go to her theatre with Dorian to, you know, have a look at her for themselves. So the three of them all go to the theatre on this sort of unrequited jolly. I once heard a podcast describe a group of gay men as a gaggle of power bottoms. First of all, this is exactly what they are. Oh, the three. <laughs> the three of them. They go, when they see Sybil perform, Dorian's like, you're going to enjoy this, lads. All of your wrong, fascinating, poisonous, delightful theories, Henry, will be proven wrong. As she comes on stage, they will agree that she's beautiful. However, quote, Yet she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo. The few words she had to speak were spoke in a thoroughly artificial manner. The staginess of her acting was unbearable and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. She overemphasized everything that she had to say. So, yeah, the audience, they all boo. And Basil tries to be nice. He's all like, oh, well, you know, she moved her arm very well i don't know the lord of the bantic disposition <laughs> is much more dismissive i mean yeah henry's like she's hot but she can't act her way out of a paper bag let's bounce boys and that is just a classic old school bitchy homosexual move i kind of love it and so the rule is when mounting a play keep it funny keep it sunny keep it those two leave, Basil and Henry, but Dorian decides to stick the performance out. But he's so mortified <laughs> because he bursts into tears because his heart is breaking. That's the most severe case of getting the ick mm. I have ever mm -hmm. heard of. Yeah. When he meets Sybil backstage, she's really pleased about her performance. She's like, I'll never act well again. This is because, this is her theory, she's so in love off stage that she has nothing left to give to the role on stage. I've grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. Even if I could do it, it would be a profanation for me to play at being in love. You have made me see that. Life is more important than art is her general gist, isn't it? And the strength of her art was at the cost of the weakness in her own life. So now that she's in love, Oh, it doesn't matter. And I mean, she's, so she's engaging with Dorian on like a philosophical, yeah. artistic oh, yeah. level. Alluding to Plato, shadows. I mean, so, so okay, right, this will go well now that she's explained herself, yeah. right? Yeah, sounds like my kind of woman. No, Dorian, he doesn't appreciate that. He dumps her. This is where a string quartet comes in playing Ariana Grande's Thank You Next. You have killed my love, he says. You used to stir my imagination. 
Now you don't even stir my curiosity. Jesus Christ! <laughs> you simply produce no effect. You don't even stir shit. That's what you should have said. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I can be quite cruel. I loved you because you were marvellous. Because you had genius and intellect. Because you realised the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You've thrown it all away. You are shallow and stupid. What, what a fool I have been! You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. Fucking hell. Yeah, rude. So, Dorian, he gets home. And you know what? What? His portrait, you know it. Yeah. Well, it looks a bit different. It does not. One would say, quote, that there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. Hmm, that sounds kind of hot. Yeah, don't mean. Yeah, know what that means. Little fang pointing out or something. Have you ever noticed this, that whenever they describe a bad boy, there's always something about him that's cruel. Mm. Cruel mouth, cruel eyes. Your eyes are like a war crime. Why is this erotic to me? Yeah, he's a cruel bollock. <laughs> the other one's quite nice. <laughs> I'm the new mayor of Bantwich. <laughs> You're a grown-ass man. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to park straight up in your ass about all this bant stuff, but you're killing this me This is literally here. the first time I've ever used the word banter. So, yeah, Dorian's picture looks different, it looks cruel. Something funny about the bollock, I don't know. So Dorian starts to wonder if his wish has come true, and that his treatment of Sybil Vane has left a sort of moral blemish on the painting. He decides to cover the painting up. And we get this bit that, you know, he's like, he starts to wonder, like, had he been cruel? You know, he sees this cruelty in the painting, and he's like, does that mean that I was cruel? And I like that, that the painting becomes a sort of barometer for how he can conceive of, like, of yeah. his own morality. Because obviously we don't really have that, do we, that idea of an external thing that measures how good or bad we are. We can, yeah, because he's rationalising his behaviour, and then now he's forced to confront, yeah. like, oh, that's a real external marker of what yeah, I've done. Yeah. So he wonders for a hot second if he'd been mean, and then we get this. Quote, but he had suffered also during the three terrible hours that the play had lasted. He that had, is long. <laughs> he had lived centuries of pain, eon upon eon of torture. Besides, women were better suited to bear sorrow than men. Whoa, get out the body chalk. We got a victim over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, to, to process all of this, he goes on a very dramatic and very decadent walk, passing, you know, the drunks and the sex workers. He looks at tulips for a while, and then he eats cherries that, quote, had been plucked at midnight, and the coldness of the moon had entered into Ooh, them. So midnight cherries. Yeah, Come yeah. on. Midnight well, cherries would be a great band name. Yeah. Dorian, after his long decadent walk, he decides, you know what, I'm going to be a better person. Quote, the picture, changed or unchanged, would be to him the visible emblem of conscience. He would resist temptation. He would not see Lord Henry anymore. He would go back to Sybil Vane, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again. So the next day, he begins to write a love letter to Sybil to win her back. That's when Lord Henry, the world banterweight champion, I wasn't even sure bantamweight was a thing. I had to look that up. You put research into yep. this? <laughs> Lord Henry shows up, and he's surprised to see Dorian in such a chipper mood. He thought he'd be in pieces. And Dorian's like, no, it's, I'll make it all okay again. It's fine. I'll marry her. Marry her, Henry says. 
But didn't you get my letter I sent you this morning? It's in all the papers. Sybil Vane is dead. Last night at the theater after you left, she drank prussic acid and died. It's always prussic acid, isn't it? That is a... I will admit, she is not messing around. I, I respect that. Hanoverian acid. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Saxon acid. Yeah. You just... you just It's just attention-seeking, isn't it? Prussic it's, acid. That's not that's, a cry for that's help. That's sorting it out. Yeah, that, that means business. Dorian is momentarily shocked, but he recovers pretty nicely. How weird it is that I was writing a love letter to a dead girl. Yes, I murdered her as surely as if I had cut her throat, but the sun still shines, the roses still bloom. Tonight we'll go to the opera and have a nice dinner. Huh, crazy old world. <laughs> One thing we haven't talked about is Dorian becoming obsessed with his own portrait even more to a kind of weird kinky level. He reveals that he once kissed his own painting on the mouth. Oh. Queer reading, hooray? Yeah, onanistic reading, hooray. Um, I'm not finding a sound effect. Who cut hole in this painting? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Daniel! <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, I didn't expect you to surpass me so soon. Yeah. I'm like Dorian, aren't I? And you're what? And even you're freaked by the, 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 the depths of depravity to which I go. So, Basil comes by the next day to commit. S- sorry, I'm just so proud of you, you sick little. F- <laughs> Basil comes by the next day to commiserate after hearing about Sybil's death. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Dorian. Oh, do you know how a poor mother's doing? And we get this funny bit where Dorian's like, my dear Basil, how do I know? Murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking dreadfully bored. I was at the opera. That's a really stupid line, isn't it? The the (laughs) gold-beaded. Dorian's like, all that civil stuff's in the past. Only shallow people require years to get rid of an emotion, he says. A man who's master of himself can end a sorrow as easily as he can invent a pleasure. I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them, to enjoy them, and to dominate them. Is this the day drunk talking? Because I'd probably say shit like this too if I had breakfast wine. (laughs) Basil's not impressed. Also, he's also here for other reasons. He wants to borrow the painting. He's like, well, I'm going to exhibit it after all. Dorian's like, no way in hell. And playing for time, he's like, well, why did you not want to do so in the first place? Basil was initially reluctant to say why why he didn't want to exhibit it, but then Dorian cajoles him, and Basil effectively confesses that he was in love with Dorian, and that he was worried that that would be apparent in the painting, thereby revealing his secret. Dorian takes steps to avoid anyone ever seeing the painting. So he takes it up to the old sort of attic schoolroom of his youth that was locked shut for many years. And it seemed like, it's almost like a sort of site of trauma, isn't it? He talks about his horrible granddad making him have tuition up there. I don't know. Yeah, but, it, and also, I mean, it's a little heavy handed in like, youth, oh, the site yeah. of youth yeah, yeah, yeah. that we can lock away and keep safe forever. Of course, yeah. Dorian's pal, the Banton Fish. Uh, <laughs> doesn't even work, does it? Has sent him a book. Quote, bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn, and edges soiled. A dirty book. Um, uh, do not shine a black light on this book. <laughs> it, I think we're meant to think it's Joris Carl Wiesmann's 1884 decadent Bible. A Oscar Wilde has a, has a little go himself at doing the save me from myself treatment doesn't he let's see let's see how he does <laughs> is it going to be as funny as us do you think well can oscar wilde live up to these gold standards well exactly yeah quote 
It was a novel without a plot and with only one character, being indeed simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian who spent his life trying to realise in the 19th century all the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own, and to sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the world spirit had never passed. The style it was written in was a curious jewelled style, vivid and obscure at once, full of argo and archaisms, of technical expressions and elaborate paraphrases that characterises the work of some of the finest artists of the French school of the Symboliste. So, there were in it metaphors as monstrous as orchids and as subtle in colour. The life of the senses was described in terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odour of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad, as he passed from chapter to chapter, a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming that made him unconscious of the falling day and creeping shadows. It's a good passage, but, yeah, don't quit your day job, I would say, Mr. Well, Wilde. Also, I can summarize it faster. It's about the dandiest fop to ever nance his way down the pike. End of. He kills a turtle. So yeah, the point is, this book, Ouroboros, sort of started off a lot of this decadent movement, or maybe it epitomized it. They were really obsessed with this book. I think it's a funny book. It's kind of a pathetic book. It feels like a satire of decadence, I think a lot of people think. It feels like Oscar Wilde came first, and then Aurobor came to spoof it rather than the other way around. But it's worth reading if you guys are in for a laugh. It's only a short little thing. Um, But yeah, it just it became synonymous with like, ooh, this this French literature that's going to corrupt people. Yeah. Quote: For years, Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book. He procured from Paris no less than nine large paper copies of the first edition and had them bound in different colors so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of nature over which he seemed at times to have entirely lost control. It's not a dick thing. I did that with the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) So years pass. And Dorian has gotten something of a whispered reputation. Every now and then, rumors run through... Hey, you heard of Dorian Gray. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, like that. So, yeah, rumors run through London society about all the sordid shit that Dorian gets up to. His freak levels are off the charts. What's he getting up to? Is he doing drugs? Is he gambling? Is he swinging naked from chandeliers like he's a human Serrano ham? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Wilde doesn't really go into it. But it ain't good. The implication is that Dorian is clapping them cheeks all over town. (laughs) You look very confused. Do you know what that means, clapping them cheeks? Tell me. Folks, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf with Abby Boucher and a heterosexual. So those are the rumors about Dorian. But no one can believe it. The lad's face is beautiful enough to be an ad for premium liquor. He hasn't aged a day. If he were truly living the debauched lifestyle, he'd surely show some physical sign of it. Dorian is still weirdly obsessed with his hidden portrait and likes to look at, quote, the evil and aging face on the canvas and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamored of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. Look, my dude, we all masturbate to terrible pictures of ourselves and scream our own names at the moment of climax, but you gotta mix it up, my dude. (laughs) God. (laughs) 
That's funny. So Dorian shuts himself away in his opulent house where he can rot. From rutting to rotting. <laughs> and he goes through his little hobby phases. He gets really into Catholicism for a while. Then he gets really into music. He becomes an apprentice jeweler. <laughs> then he gets really into embroidery and tapestries. Aside from all of his um, doing his kind of Buster Blue style PhDs, um, (laughs) he's making perfume and studying perfume. This is all to sort of distract him from the painting, which otherwise would consume his waking hours. And he can't even bear to leave the house out of fear that someone will break in and discover the painting in his absence. Over time, he begins to weird out even high society, and he can only keep his place in it through his extreme beauty and wealth. On the eve of Dorian's 38th birthday, he runs into Basil after what seems to have been a kind of period of estrangement. So Basil's going that night to Paris to really get to grips with doing art. What a basic bitch. Yeah, of course. And he's like, just, you know, before I got on my special midnight train. Not to Georgia. I've never heard of that song. Um, But your face as well. It's hard to get, isn't it? It's hard to get. (laughs) My petard, it hoisted me. Yeah. He's like, just before I get on the train, I want to have a chat with you, Dorian. Quote, you should know that the most dreadful things are being said against you in London. Dorian seems unfazed. Basil's like, well, you you must care. Every gentleman is interested in his good name. Mind you, I don't believe these rumours at all. At least I can't believe them when I see you. Sin is a thing that writes itself across a man's face. It cannot be concealed. With your pure, bright, innocent face and your marvellous, untroubled youth, I can't believe anything against you. There's a bit of dramatic irony for us. I would be a lot more concerned that my friend wasn't aging than about their reputation. If it's been like almost 20 years and they haven't aged today, I'd be like, I'm sorry, are you using one of those red LED light therapy masks? Is this some sort of like Peter Pan shit? Are you in the goddamn Matrix? Anyway, Basil is like, you look so good, you can't be evil, because that's the rule, isn't it? That said, quote, they say you corrupt everyone with whom you become intimate. Yeah, there was a young soldier who committed suicide, a young lord who had to leave England in disgrace, three other young hunks that Basil mentions who have all been made the worse for knowing Dorian. But I want a kind of Gilbert and Sullivan patter song <laughs> with them, with like funny rhyming names. Like... <laughs> it's think... a bit like the Don Giovanni song about all of his lovers. And Mambo Number no. 5. Yes, very similar. Yeah. <laughs> What's Dorian been up to? To fully know, Basil says, Quote, I'd have to see your soul. And obviously you can't do that. It's just a rhetorical flourish, isn't it? Well. Okay, dummy. Let's go take a look at yeah, our soul. Funny you should say soul together, yeah, shall we? We're going upstairs. You asked for it. We're going to look at my soul. Come on, everybody. Let's all go upstairs. They unveil it. And it doesn't look good. There was something in the expression that filled Basil with disgust and loathing. Ooh, Jekyll and Hyde. We don't know what it is, but it's, it's evil looking, you know? Oh, I love that you can't articulate yeah. that. Fantasiac horror was, especially gay horror, was all about... Stuff you can't articulate. Dare not speak its name. Well, exactly, yes. Uh, The horror, whatever it was, had not yet entirely spoiled that marvellous beauty. There was still some gold in the thinning hair and some scarlet on the sensual mouth. The sodden eyes had kept something of the loveliness of their blue. He used a TikTok debauchery filter. Exactly, yes. Dorian explains the Faustian deal. He's like, deal is... I do a bad thing. Painting. Muggins here. <laughs> Pays the price. Basil's not impressed. He's horrified. He's like, let's all sort this out of a good prey. Come on, everybody. Get on your knees. Not like that. Uh, Dorian's like, I've got other ideas. And he gets a knife 
And then he runs Basil through. He glossed over what happens. He stabs Basil in the neck repeatedly. Well, it make a difference. I don't know. I don't know. I think running someone through is very Shakespearean. Ha ha. A hit. A palpable hit. And this is... I think if you die, you die. Okay, come here. I have a fun experiment for us to try together, shall we? So anyway, Basil's dead. So this whole scene is fairly gory. Dorian opens up a window and he feels much better. They should call it Gorian. <laughs> Gorian slay? No, my joke's better, I think. Hey, if there are any people out there in a roller derby and you need us to come up with some names for you, don't contact don't us. I understand that. You know, like, roller derby, you have all the, like, violent, like, Helen Killer. I don't really know what a roller derby is. Dorian opens a window, and he feels much better. Quite calm, in fact. And he watches a policeman below who's making his late-night rounds while Basil's body leaks blood next to him. And I just think this is a hell of a scene. Yeah, this is a good really bit. good scene. And he realizes nobody actually saw Basil come to the house, not even my servants. And Basil was just about to grab a train to Paris to stay for the next several months. No one will know he's missing for more than half a year. As long as I can get rid of the body... We got the perfect crime, baby. It's a good tip, isn't it? Murder someone just before they gap you. <laughs> the next day, Dorian summons Alan Campbell, a young chemist with whom he had a nudge-nudge-wink-wink wink friendship five years before. But then something happened, and now they're not on speaking terms. Dorian starts to explain, You're never going to believe this, but there's a dead man upstairs, and could you help me dissolve the body? And Alan says, Fuck you, and the horse you rode in on. Sidebar, I hate that expression. Please don't fuck the horse somebody rode in on. Dorian tries to charm him, to guilt him, to trade on their old dead friendship, but nothing works. Except blackmail. Um, I, I don't know what Dorian has over this guy, but it's clearly something really good, and he's like, do this or I'll tell. Isn't it the nudge-nudge-wink-wink friendship? It might be, but that's going to hurt Dorian as much as this guy, so I don't know if it's that, if it's something else. I, I truly have no idea. So Alan dissolves the body, and that's the end of Basil, my sweet little buddy. And as a slight throwaway note, later in the novel it's revealed that Alan ends up killing himself so over this. Too. Yeah. And I just think there's a dude doing something weird and gay with a body in an attic. Are we back in Frankenstein? It's all coming together. That's why people voted for it. They knew this was the culmination point. Yeah, we should name Dorian Frankenfine. Dorian sort of gets to a bit of a nervous breakdown, but instead of just feeling his feelings and going to therapy, he instead decides to go out to the wrong side of the tracks and live it up dirtbag style. He's gonna go do some drugs and find a sex worker who will hate fuck him, and the prefab I have here is, if he walked by a line of sex workers, they'd all just start singing Hey Big Bender. English term as well. Well, I'm British now. Oh yeah, I forgot. Well done. So there's a he runs into a drunken sex worker who Dorian has clearly been with before because the implication is that she was a respectable woman who he has ruined and sent out on the streets. She offers her services. You looking for business? And he's like, no, I'm not that depressed. As he leaves, she sarcastically calls after him something to the effect of, oh, you like to be called Prince Charming during coitus. That was the thing that Sybil Vane used to call him. 
a sailor at another table jumps up at hearing this and follows Dorian outside. That's right, after almost 20 years, James Vane is back from Australia. This is the first clue he's ever gotten about who caused his sister's death. Because in 1891, there are no white women hosting true crime podcasts and solving cold cases. James Vane, he runs out, rugby tackles Dorian. He's like, you're the bounder that did my sister wrong. You know, I know that because you got called Prince Charming and Dorian's like, oh, listen here, old fellow, that was 18 years ago and, and look how young I am. And James is like, oh yeah, I nearly just killed an innocent man. You're like 28 or something like that. You couldn't, you were a child b- groom bride. <laughs> yeah, go on, get your beautiful cheekbones out of here. I'm so, so begging your pardon, mister, begging your pardon. <laughs> and then that sex worker from earlier, the one who, you know, called him Prince Charming, actually she turns up. Yeah, you, you, it was him. He's in his 40s. He ruined me too. He's, what does she call him? He's the devil's bargain, matey. But that's him. That's your man. And James is like, oh, blow. And goes off to chase him. Can't find him. He's gone. So. He shakes his fist at the sky and goes, charming. Exactly, yeah. Next, we get some more high society stuff. Oh, good. We get some dialogues about gender and aesthetics. They're good bits. They don't really work in this context. (laughs) Dorian certainly thinks they're very boring. He just kind of collapses and lies in bed for three days in a melancholy stupor. (laughs) Everyone passes this off as just something that gentlemen do from time to time, but the real reason that Dorian fainted is that he saw James Vane's face pressed up against the conservatory window outside, watching him. So he'd found out who Dorian is. He's hunted him down. Prince Paradox, you know, the prince of the fantastic planet is sometimes known. Daniel, that is unhinged. We've got to, we've got, no. Henry Wooten. (laughs) Yep, doesn't matter. I saw that film Fantastic Planet recently. I'd recommend it. It is stupid. He's increasingly worried about Dorian. You know, even the most cynical guy on earth is worrying about. So Dorian recovers a little bit and he goes out and joins all the other Aristos for a big shooting party. You know, he's like, oh, I'm in a bit of a good mood now. I want to see something die. Um, One of the poshos there accidentally shoots one of the beaters dead. Do people know what a beater is? Is that what you were about to ask? Yeah. Do you, well, you, you tell me. A beater is a servant who would typically go through the bushes and beat the bushes so um, whatever birds or animals you're hunting jump out. Yeah, you, yeah. you scare them out. and then Beating about the bush. Yes, that, that is what that phrase means. Yeah, so one of, the, one of these poor beaters accidentally gets shot by the hunting party. Dorian is horrified, and he's like, oh my god, oh, it's all about me, really, isn't it? Ooh, <laughs> misfortune follows me wherever I go. This event's an omen, yeah, oh, it's awful. However, it later transpires that the man was not a beater. What? He was not even a member of the estate staff. He didn't have a lanyard or anything. <laughs> he was a stranger in a sailor's uniform with a gun on him. So how the hell do you mistake him for a beater then if well, he's there? he just shoots a bloke far off. If he's dressed like you used to dress as a little boy. Yeah, it was a big lolly. <laughs> the bu- the, if the bullet had gone through that lolly, he would have been all right. Dorian goes to have a look at the body. You never believe it. You never had him an either. It's James Vane. So this was actually about Dorian the whole time. <laughs> yes, yeah, as everything is, yeah. <laughs> I was really geared up for a great cat and mouse thing. I thought this was going to be like too, yeah. like an Acme cartoon where, you know, like Dorian's walking down the street and pianos are like dropping just behind him or he's like, like a Mr. Magoo sort of situation. Dorian is driving through the desert. James Vane paints a tunnel <laughs> into a cliff face. Dorian crashes into it and the cliff face looks old. <laughs> no, it, that does not work. Okay, it's fine. 
So after all this, Dorian realizes, okay, I've just had a very narrow escape. Not entirely sure why, because surely if he gets shot, the painting will just have a hole in it and he can carry on. Well, yeah. What about if he got shot? Would the painting have a bullet hole in it? Does the painting get fat when he eats? And also, in the kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean, oh, you know, we couldn't be satisfied way, when he takes drugs and stuff, is it the painting that's getting high? <laughs> I mean, is he completely impervious to any and all bodily harm? If you shove him off a cliff, it is, yeah, does yeah. he live? This is painting a kind of pizza. It's gone a bit Jackson Pollock. <laughs> and I suppose the sort of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen version of Dorian Gray. Do they have one? I bet they do. I think they do. Would be like that, that if you punched him, his painting would have a bruise. But, uh, but how much damage can that painting take? Can he be stabbed and shot and exploded and doused in lye and uh, I mean there, there is there no terps do you think that what's the terps turpentine oh, oh, oh that would be what oh shoot, he wicked witch Did. of the west oh no I was thinking uh, <laughs> that shoe that cartoon shoe on, on Roger Rabbit yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah Dorian decides to turn over a new leaf after this he's like listen I'm going to go to the country, and when I'm there, I am not going to exploit and have sex with this pretty country girl I'm kind of courting. And so every time he manages to resist doing this, he considers it a great moral victory. <laughs> we also find out in a very blasé way that people have finally noticed that Basil has gone missing, but no one seems to care that much. Even some newspapers speculate that Basil might have been murdered, but eh. And even Lord Henry is like, well, he was a great painter, but he was pretty boring, what with all of his integrity. Lord Henry, a.k.a. Inbanta de España. Dorian does a little speculative. Henry, friendo, what if I told you that I murdered Basil? And Henry's like, oh, that's cute. Look at your little cute little face. But we all know that murder is vulgar and you're just too classy a dude. Mm -hmm. So they have another long talk about how youth and beauty are the only things worth having and how Lord Henry would give anything to be young again. But also, when Dorian is like, oh, I did a good thing, I didn't seduce this woman, Henry's like, no, you did that out of the perverse desire to be good. So actually, you are still being <laughs> bad. You lose. Oh, yeah, he, well, he's he's good coring or exactly. something. Oh, yeah, he's done a bit of good core. Oh, it's nasty. Oh, I'll tell me I'm your good little boy. Yeah, exactly. You can't I'll, win. I'll go to bed at nine o'clock. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Dorian goes home and thinks about how virtuous he's been and how maybe, maybe the painting will even change back. He can reverse the damage. It's a moral retinol. Mm -hmm. So he goes up to have a look at it. Yes, he would be good. And the hideous thing he had hidden away would no longer be a terror to him. No! A cry of pain and indignation broke from him. He could see no change, save that in the eyes there was a look of cunning, and in the mouth the curved wrinkle of the hypocrite. <laughs> Jesus I'm, Christ. I'm, I couldn't tell what that looked like. When your face is that fucked up, how can you tell? Yeah. The thing was still loathsome. More loathsome, if possible, than before. Dorian wonders if old Bantrick sex... God damn it, Daniel. Lord Henry was right. Damn it, Daniel! Had it been merely vanity that had made him do this one good deed? In hypocrisy, he had worn the mask of goodness. For curiosity's sake, he had tried the denial of self. He recognised that now. But Dorian also realises, unlike most guilty people, that he can eradicate his pangs of guilt, his conscience, by destroying the painting itself. He takes the same knife with which he stabbed the painting's creator and stabs the picture. And there is a cry... Yeah, we're going to cut away. There is a cry so horrible in its agony 
that the frightened servants woke and crept out of their rooms. The servants all break into the room, another Jekyll and Hyde bit, and when they entered they found hanging on the wall a splendid portrait of their master as they had last seen him, in all the wonder of his exquisite youth and beauty. Lying on the floor was a dead man in evening dress with a knife in his heart. He was withered, wrinkled, and loathsome of visage. It was not till they had examined the rings that they recognised who it was. Pow! That's the end. No credits. Doesn't even have any credits. It's just over. With a nasty 38-year-old crone. Would you like some casting, please? Okay. I would, thank you. I said okay before you even yeah. said yes. So a lot of this book is about capturing beauty and understanding beauty and art being beauty, right? And there's there's only one director who I think could actually do this justice. I want Anthony Minghella to direct this. He's my favorite director, and he manages to carve out the most subtle beauty on film that I've ever seen. For Dorian... We should go with a Minghella stalwart, a young Jude Law, who is described kind of identically to how Dorian Ooh, is yeah, in the books. That'd be nice. But Jude Law already... And he goes bold as well. You know, old Jude Law <laughs> playing the painting. Oh, be nice. Oh, no. It's a f- I'm sorry, Jude. I know you're a big fan. The problem is Jude Law already played Lord Alfred Douglas, Bosey, in that Oscar Wilde biopic. What, so, the Stephen Fry one? Yeah. All right. So I say that we give a previous Dorian Gray... My boyfriend, Ben Barnes, I say we give him another go at this. He's pretty much the apex of male beauty. He's good at playing a bit of a shit. And I think he's actually a good actor. I think he just deserved a better film than the Dorian Gray adaptation he got. be a really good film of Dorian Gray in his attic. <laughs> Does that even make sense? <laughs> no, Maybe it's I this mean... one. <laughs> so... I think we give Colin Firth another go as Sir Harry. Um, he and Ben Barnes have great chemistry. And I want Ben Wishaw as Basil. Oh yeah, I can see that one. Now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. <laughs> I fail to see why this should be on any Christian's recommended reading list. <laughs> one star. Then there was one review that was just a gif of Ace Ventura saying, Alrighty then, two stars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> I feel like this book should come with a disclaimer that there is not an actual picture of Dorian Gray included. Like, why did I even bother buying the book then? One star. So let's get on to your pages and pages of analysis, hey, please. That's, they're yours as well. Oh, sh- they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, Look at me trying to give you grief. Yeah. Oh, God, there is lots of my stuff here. I, I retract it. And I apologize. That's all right. Wholeheartedly and unreservedly. So, form. It's a ghost story slash Faustian narrative, but it's also kind of a very philosophical text, isn't it? It kind of sometimes reads a bit like a platonic dialogue. You know, they're actual, like, proper dialogue chapters. But then I thought Plato also has all, like, magic rings and fantasy countries like Atlantis and stuff. And we know that Wilde was into platonic philosophy, so I feel like there is some kind of... He's almost trying to resuscitate that dead genre. You know, what, keeping it alive long well, after? Well, Is this a ghost story? You said a ghost story, but is it a ghost story? It's a supernatural story? narrative, isn't it? Yeah, I'm like, what would you, what would you call that? It's this kind is... of a ghost story as well, like that, that sense of a presence. 
What, like the picture is haunting him? Yeah, well, he's a kind of ghost, though, as well, isn't he? Because he doesn't change, and he's a kind yeah. of, you know, there's a kind of, it's sort of a ghost story, isn't it? What I find funny is they change the ending in a lot of the film adaptations. Oh, yeah. Where Sir Harry has a cute little daughter who has a crush on Dorian when she's a little girl, but then she grows up, and she's the one who teaches him how to love. And, and yeah, they've done this in, I think, at least two <sighs> film versions. And Harry, Harry sort of mellows with age, and then he's like, oh, honey, you should not get involved with Dorian. Like, we palled around when we were younger, but... And, you know, he kills himself to spare her, and, you know, oh. yeah, it's it really undercuts a lot of what's yeah. going on. But also, it'd be quite hard to film Dorian just thinking stuff about the nature of the soul and of beauty. That's why you need Anthony Magella. He could make it happen. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, so we, you talked about the platonic dialogue hmm. chapters. And I thought that every chapter in this is pretty much a scene in its own right. We rarely get anything that's sort of panoramic or with time passing, apart from that one chapter that that was your favorite, the Dorian's Hobbies. (laughs) And even then, that's just like a list, pretty much, isn't it? It it, it conveys time passing only in the way that a list can. Yeah. Yeah. But But I I just thought that every chapter in this, considering there's so much about the theater and acting, it felt like set pieces in the theater and everything sort of slots together to make a whole. There's something quite fractured and yet claustrophobic. Yeah, and no, contained about this book. It's very appealing in that sense. I suppose to be fragmentary, but also, yeah, to be claustrophobic, there's a kind of paradoxical quality there, isn't there? Which is mm-hmm. in keeping with the sort of ironical spirit of people like Watton and the sort of overall message of the text, which is kind of hard to pass. So I like that. that but the, the idea that this, this book is sort of made up of different genres... And, yeah. and sort of is resuscitating. It, this, it feels like little set pieces from maybe even different... It's a cubist work. Dorian's painting is cubist. Oh. He goes upstairs and it's this horrible modern painting and he's like, my daughter could have done that and stabs it. That's what it's about. It's about modern art. <laughs> it's a Mondrian, yeah. Yeah. Because modernism is when squares... Yes, exactly. Did you know that? Yeah. That's, I will just say right now, I'm not a big fan of decadence because it feels a bit... Too late to the party for romanticism, mm. too early for modernism. And that's part of the appeal of it as well, because it is about decay and it is about feeling like you've missed out. In terms of the form, I wanted to talk a little bit, just to tie together yeah. some of the threads. Lord Henry's little, his little sayings, his little quips, his, I mean, we didn't even... The bant. I was trying to avoid, in this last, in the 11th fucking hour, Daniel. In, in a sacred space like analysis. <laughs> I would say that, I'm a decadent though, aren't I? You've perverted it. This is is our church. You have profaned our church. Hey, come on. The Jaguars keep breaking into the temple and drinking the holy water. (laughs) Soon that becomes part of the ritual. I'm going to say Bance in every analysis now. But yeah, so we didn't include any of his little sayings, and many of them are really famous. Oh, yeah, no, I like them, yeah. Like, reading this book, I was like, it's like watching Fight Club, where you're like, oh, God, that's, that, that's, that's where, where this that comes from. from. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was kind of amazing to read. But I wanted to talk about the sort of psychology of Lord Henry, because everything is such surface level and such bitchiness. It's clearly an intimacy issue. It's clearly a maturity issue. But sometimes it feels quite fractured. Like, you know, he's he's not a real person with real wants and desires. He's just a walking Caricature. Twitter feed. Yeah. yeah. It feels like he and Basil are at times in different books. Or that they're sort of composites, as we've already kind of discussed. They're both the yeah. sides of Wild, the, the showy gadabout and the sensitive the abused two- sugar daddy. <laughs> if two, you can have that. The two sides of decadence, the two sides of Wild. Yeah. But as we were talking about... The with- Wild side... A little of Lord Henry goes a long way. Because yeah. at first you start out going, oh my god, this guy's great, he's so funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And by like the third or fourth time I'm in the first yeah, chapter. I was gonna say, by, by the end of that first chapter, I was like, Jesus. Just could you imagine going out? And you know, he's, he's made his little list, his little talking points of, you know, I'm going to work in tonight. The, this little joke. like Shit, you think he prefabs it? I think he might. I think he's like me. I think, I think he's like me. No, I think he's like me. I want listeners to write in and let a, you let us know if you think Lord Henry writes down little prefabs in advance or if this is all off the cuff. But I don't want to be like silly, right? But that's the magic of the book, isn't it? <laughs> they, it, are, it they are pre-written in as much as the book was written. But it's like the idea that, oh, imagine if there was this guy out there. That's, you know, I want Dorian Gray and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen getting all shot, but he's fine because the painting just gets shot. Lord Henry Wooten, he's so witty. He's, like People are falling over. They're so dryly amused. That is the shittest superpower <laughs> I've ever heard. The power of wit. Could you imagine him in Avengers Endgame or whatever, or whatever the fuck it's called? With who's the who's the big bad? I don't know. With the, the purple daddy. Uh, uh, I think he's Nero. Per- yeah, Nero. When when Iron Man fights Nero. The problem is they all quips these days anyway, don't they? Oh God, they do. I don't know. I'm sorry. That's the problem. Like, wouldn't feels like an anticipation of the 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 quippy hell we live in now that we're oh, contributing that's, to. That's we are not of the same ilk. It's a broad church. Oh, God. That's the end of this podcast. <laughs> Pull the plug. <laughs> so, art, aesthetics, art and life. How do they relate to each other? What's going on? What does? What do you think Wilde thinks? I don't think he wants to settle on it, does he? I think that's that's why the nature of the painting is left so ambiguous, or the relationship between it and Dorian. There's that bit, um, I love this bit, when um, Henry and Dorian are talking about Sybil's death, and Dorian's just like, oh, this is awful. And Henry's like, it so often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an artistic manner that they hurt us. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. So that, like, the constructedness of an artwork is almost a, a strength. Mm-hmm. The high formality of an artwork is a strength because the chaos of the world is unesthetic. And I, I don't know, I, just, I, I kind of can't really think about how to explain that. Mm-hmm. But the, the sense that art is more real than life in as much as it has a kind of craftedness or a falsity to it. And that life is less real because it's just so... Just so chaotic and chock-a-block and ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a weird one because for all that this talks about the connection between art and life, the two artists in this, Basil and Sybil, they're all for their art. They have no lives outside of that. And when Sybil tries to have it all, which she can't sustain even for a day, her world collapses. Yeah, and I mean, in a way, Wilde is predicting his own life that he uses himself and he uses Bosie for his art to create this great art but as soon as the personal life starts to surpass his artistic life both of them go to shit in fact but let's talk about the sexuality stuff briefly because I was just thinking it's very similar to Jekyll and Hyde isn't it very and they touch on very similar themes the idea of having double lives homosexuality and stuff but the back door in Jekyll and Hyde it's very like bodily isn't mm-hmm. it Jekyll and Hyde it's about your body physically changing mm-hmm. back and forth Dorian Gray is much more like spiritual and intellectual it's like you know like the whole the brain is actually the most erotic <laughs> and I just thought this bit but I was thinking this bit when Wilde was in the witness box at his trial and they were like the, the prosecuting barrister was like what's the love that dare not speak its name and Wilde just went off on one saying oh uh, it's the affection for an el- of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It's that deep spiritual affection that is as pure as it is perfect. It dictates and pervades great works of art. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Obviously, that didn't help his trial at all. But the fact that he would have this um, 
really like ideal, like almost metaphysical idea of homosexuality. Uh, what Bosie and I have, it's the stuff of great art. And exactly. Yeah. It's nothing to do with, you know. <laughs> You're trying to make it ugly, but it's good. Yeah, it's pure. exactly. Yeah. It's, like, it's that sort of platonic diatimer's ladder thing, isn't it? At the bottom, you have sexual desire. At the top, you have kind of pure intellectual desire. But they are continuous, but you have different rungs. Jekyll and Hyde is on the bottom level, and Dorian Gray is on the top level, but they're both yeah. the same. I like that he says that, though. But meanwhile, Bosie is probably sitting there, like, in the audience at the trial, ashing a cigarette and, like, hitting on some young hottie. Oh, well, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? I can't believe Wilde would be so crazy as to say, I've got nothing to declare but my gayness or whatever, you know? <laughs> right, shall we go on to some advice? Yes, please. So, we've talked about this a little bit before on this podcast. The author's personal life or opinions don't really matter that much when you're analyzing a book. What matters a lot more is what a text does and how you, the reader, interpret it. However, sometimes looking into an author's background can shed some light on the dynamics you see in the book. So, I think it's really interesting that Wilde casts himself as both Lord Henry and as Basil, and then he casts his horrible boyfriend, Lord Alfred Douglas, as Dorian. You can take some notes from their relationship and put it on the readings of these characters, and that, mm. that might give you yeah. a little bit more. Just yeah, don't, yeah. don't rely too much on biography. So, the clue to the next episode. This is a real easy one. We're going to softball it into you guys. Of all the possible books we could have chosen, this one is the best. Very good. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Subscribe. You know what to do. Come on. We're trying to, you know, keep this. We're trying to live here. <laughs> we're trying to keep going. If you're getting even the slightest bit randified by my outro. <laughs> you need to convince all your friends to subscribe yeah. as well. You've done the nasty. Now do your duty. <laughs> give, us, give us those five stars. Lie back and think of five stars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, on that note, you have anything left you want to say? No, I'm all out of bants. Fresh out of bants. <sighs> Wait, I've got something. <sighs> no. I was going to try and think of something about, like, the bant well is dry, but <laughs> what would that be? That doesn't mean no, anything. Well, exactly. Was... Really, you, got, you managed to squeak one more in just sorry. under the I'm wire. Sorry. I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.